Welcome back to Franchise Festival, where we go in-depth with noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. You can follow us on Twitter at Franchise underscore Fest, write to us at FranchiseFestival at gmail.com, and support us at Patreon.com slash FranchiseFestival. Patrons get access to a bonus episode each month and vote on future episode topics. We'd also like to give a special shout-out to our newest patron, Cedric the Owl. Thank you for subscribing. As for us, we're your hosts, Chris and Spencer. Even though we've been alternating between coverage of Sonic the Hedgehog and the works of indie studio Supergiant for Season 3, circumstances conspired to delay our planned Pyre episode from June to July of this year. So in its place, we are providing an addendum to our first season by giving our impressions of the recently released The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Unlike most of our shows, this one is going to be relatively spoiler-free, because we're going to be going over just the first dozen hours or so of the new game, so there will be spoilers for the overall structure, but, uh, you know, we aren't going to walk you through the whole plot for this. You know, I was thinking about this earlier today as I was driving, and if someone wanted to really, like, pinpoint where we're doing it, Mm -hmm. the... Altus Plateau equivalent of this game, past that to the first village that you go to. I think up to that point, you will have experienced all the locations, major changes, and mechanics that I think we're probably going to cover here. Now, when you say Altus Plateau, Spencer, I think you're referring to FromSoft's Elden Ring. Shit. Yes. What's the tutorial plateau in Breath of the Wild? The Great Plateau. The you know, Great Plateau. There you go. I thought that you were expecting, perhaps, you know, our listeners as people of culture to have already played Elden Ring. And so you were saying that the Altus Plateau equivalent in this game is where they would have been expected to get to. And I was thinking, you know, Altus Plateau is pretty far in Elden Ring. Nope, I meant the Great Plateau from Breath of the Wild. Got it, yeah, like the tutorial, yeah. Uh, you know, I was I, I was really kind of going back and forth in my mind on where to take this through. And I, I won't say here, just so people can duck out if they don't want to know literally anything about Tears of the Kingdom. But, um, golly, I don't know how to finish that sentence without spoiling literally anything about Tears of the Kingdom, uh, structurally. Yeah, this you is... Know, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Who knew we had it so easy by only covering old games up until this point? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walking the line yeah. of spoilers is a weirdly tricky thing. In any case, we hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll return to our regular programming next month. With regard to the development of Tears of the Kingdom, there's a pretty extensive interview on Nintendo's website in the spirit of uh, Iwata Asks that goes over quite a bit of how this game came to be made. The people interviewed are series producer Eiji Aonuma, who designed the Ocarina of Time dungeons and has run the series since Twilight Princess, director Hidemaro Fujibayashi, 
who directed Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild. Technical director, Takuhiro Dota. Art director, Satoru Takizawa. And sound director, Hajime Wakai, who first composed for The Wind Waker, and has been the sound director for all series entries since Skyward Sword. Development on Tears of the Kingdom began in 2017, shortly after Breath of the Wild was completed. Fujibayashi proposed building the game around the ability to combine environmental objects. After he experimented with the idea of playing Breath of the Wild, the final retail build, so series creator Shigeru Miyamoto was mostly uninvolved in Tears of the Kingdom because he was busy with the Super Mario Brothers movie, but he did sign off on Fujibayashi's concept. Uh, Fujibayashi demonstrated it to Miyamoto, and Miyamoto gave it the the critical thumbs up at Nintendo, so they knew they were on the right track. The one controversial bit with this mechanic was whether objects would attach to one another neatly, you know, be joined at the seams and so forth, or be visually changed by the process. And I didn't know this. Eiji Aonuma, the series producer, was trained as a woodcarver in his youth, so he, he had a dog in this fight. Uh, Aonuma originally wanted the designs when players made them in Tears of the Kingdom to look more elegant and uh, more purpose-built. But he lost out because Fujibayashi demonstrated how it worked in the final game and showed off this, this satisfying sound design and the visuals where they squished together with the glue. And so Aonuma was won over. He decided that uh, it gave this more handmade, handcrafted aesthetic that would give players more ownership over their creations. The team wanted to reintroduce magic to the series, which had been considered for Breath of the Wild, but was cut from the final version. So in an effort to add something new to the franchise, rather than just reuse older magic mechanics, they settled on using the Zonai technology as a stand-in. And eagle-eyed players of Breath of the Wild will remember that the Zonai are the creators of those ruins that you find in the jungle uh, and some other places in Hyrule. I was very tickled about this, because when I encountered those ruins, I thought, who built them? And uh, Tears of the Kingdom answers that question. I've got a hot take on the Zonai technology. Hit me. It doesn't actually seem that much more advanced than the old Sheikah technology you uncover in Breath of the Wild. Yeah, the, the Sheikah, some of the Sheikah tech is not present in this. Like, I haven't seen a Guardian yet, for example. And the Sheikah slate isn't any less advanced than the Pura pad. Right, which is clearly a Switch as opposed to the Sheikah Slate's Wii U. Yeah. I don't know, man. What are you saying? That that a Switch is just a a fancied-up Wii U? What are you getting well, at here, Spencer? I mean, you said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm not putting words in your mouth. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, we didn't have a battery in Breath of the Wild, so we couldn't see just how advanced Sheikah Tech could get, I suppose. But here, there's a battery meter that uh, it shows the battery power that charges, what do you call them, Zonai devices? So it, it functionally stands in as a magic meter. Early in development, Aonuma and Fujibayashi decided to reuse the basic map of Hyrule from Breath of the Wild. A pretty controversial decision in some ways. I, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, there's no other Zelda that reuses the previous game's map, is there? Um... 
Link Between Worlds and Link to the Past have a lot of overlap. That, ooh, that's a good point. Because I was thinking back, there was an article I read online that said this is the second direct sequel in Zelda's history, which is untrue. And, you know, I, you know, it was, it was by a journalist who I'm sure is writing like six articles a day. You know, they, they, they're under the gun. But I was thinking, it did, it did provoke in my mind, I was thinking about how many direct sequels has Zelda had? And we've got Majora's Mask, which yeah. is a direct sequel to Ocarina of Time, but occurs in a different place entirely. Yep. We've got Phantom Hourglass, which is the same way. It's a direct sequel to Wind Waker, but occurs in a different part of the ocean. And then we've got Link Between Worlds, which is what I would describe as a quasi-sequel to Link to the Past, right? Like it, uh, I guess it occurs in the same timeline as Link to the Past, and unlike any of those other sequels, in the same space. But critically, Link to the Past was sprite-based, and Link Between Worlds is polygonal. So it's it's a 3D interpretation of a once 2D space. I know they didn't use the same map, but was Spirit Tracks a sequel to Phantom Hourglass, or no? Sort of. Uh, Spirit Tracks, that, that's a weird one, because Spirit Tracks uses the same game engine as Phantom Hourglass. Those are both Nintendo DS games. But Spirit Tracks occurs in the distant future of Phantom Hourglass, and the Link that you play as is in fact a descendant of the Link from Wind Waker and Phantom Hourglass. Okay. It's, weirdly enough, it's the same space, the same physical space as Phantom Hourglass, but it's long enough in the future that the seas have receded. The reverse Wind Waker. Yes, 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 exactly. (laughs) So, the reuse of Breath of the Wild's map was partially based on Fujibayashi's experience developing the game Wii Sports Resort in the early 2000s, or mid-2000s. In that title, he reused the game's central hub area as levels for individual activities, changing the context in which the place was seen by the player. Because he thought it was cool, and I agree with him, that having new discoveries in a familiar space is interesting. I also think it's nice that because Breath of the Wild had taken so long to make, I guess it had, what, like a four or five year development cycle, that they got to reuse a bunch of the game engine and art assets. It's it's nice to not just throw that stuff away, isn't it? Yeah, I was, well, not to break structure too bad, but I was looking at the end of the notes where, you know, you we talk about where the series is going after this, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about how the scope would have to shrink because this game is so massive, and a big part of that is because they were able, in my opinion at least, because they were able to build on the world they had already created for Breath of the Wild. Mm-hmm. So, assuming that they don't make a third Zelda in this timeline for the Switch or whatever, and they, mm-hmm. you know, start over again, something of this scope, I think, would be, I don't know, I'm not a professional, but it seems like it would be totally unfeasible to build something of this scope from scratch. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've already alluded to it. I, I love this game, and I think a big part of why they were able to do what they did was because they were not afraid to build off of the foundation they already had from Breath of the Wild, so... I think they made a good call. The lifting of technical limitations required by Nintendo's previous generation consoles influenced how new areas were designed for Tears of the Kingdom. Aonuma had wanted digging and explorable subterranean spaces in Breath of the Wild, but was unable to implement it due to the programming restrictions of the Wii U. 
so they revisited that for Tears of the Kingdom. On the other hand, Fujibayashi returned to an idea that he had wanted to use in Skyward Sword, which was diving all the way from an island in the sky to the ground. And players will recall that in Skyward Sword, you can dive from the sky, but at a certain point there's a loading screen where you kind of need to pick where you're headed to on the ground, and then you appear there through uh, through an you know unseeable, uh, what would you call it, an opaque layer of clouds. Development took over five years and required 300 people. When looking for inspiration, the leading developers looked at videos that fans had shared online of them breaking Breath of the Wild's game engine to overcome obstacles in ways that hadn't been intended so they could integrate that kind of creativity with the new game that they were building. A Washington Post interview of Aonuma by Gene Park revealed that Tears of the Kingdom was finished by March 2022, but Nintendo spent a full year after that polishing it to ensure that the game worked seamlessly and without virtually any glitches. Functionally unheard of in a game of this scale. There was a trailer in early 2023 that was met with ambivalence by fans, sadly myself included, because it was perceived to be too similar to Breath of the Wild, so series producer Al Numa gave a full 13-minute gameplay demonstration in late March to show off the new systems and present to fans just how different Tears of the Kingdom would be. That succeeded in dramatically increasing fan enthusiasm, and the game launched to a staggering 10 million sales within its first week on store shelves in May 2023. So as we mentioned before, this uses the same engine, same map, a lot of the same mechanics as Breath of the Wild. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to rehash all of it. You should listen to our Breath of the Wild episode for that. Yeah. Uh, but we do want to cover the major changes because they did add and change a lot. Uh, the first one is the addition of explorable space. So in addition to just the normal ground level Hyrule, there's also a series of floating sky islands, mm-hmm. which are surprisingly extensive. Uh, when you're yeah. on the ground, they look real tiny, but once you get up there, some of them are pretty sprawling, as well as a massive underground area called the Depths, which I have not explored the full uh, like breadth of that yet, but it, it appears to be about the same size as the base overworld. Yeah, as far as I can tell, it is. It, the areas are subdivided. I've only explored maybe an eighth of it so far but it's uh the downside is that it's just kind of one biome you know like there's a sameness to it that's not present on the overworld but it is very spooky very lovecraftian and very big yes so the the footprint of explorable spaces i mean i'm gonna say it's about twice as big as uh, breath of the wild yeah it feels like 2.5 or something almost yeah yeah uh it's worth noting, too, that Hyrule itself is also somewhat modified. Mm-hmm. Um, so plot-wise, 
chunks of the ground uh, basically broke out some ruins broke out from underground and mm-hmm. flew up into the sky making the sky islands and then the holes that those left lead to the depths but there's also um some uh, like topography changes to hyrule as well as right. a lot of cave systems that have opened up so you get to do quite a bit of spelunking as you yeah and even the areas that you're familiar with have culturally changed due to changes in leadership or new people coming in uh, so it's it's actually it's surprisingly refreshing to visit areas that you expect to be familiar with and find new things there. Yes, the the abilities from Breath of the Wild are gone. Uh, none of them make a new appearance. Yeah, but we get uh, four shiny new ones. Technically five. We get five new ones. This is. Mm, I want to build kind of a little spoiler warning in here. Because you get four abilities, and you get a fifth one as you explore the depths. So for folks who haven't gotten that fifth ability yet, if you want to stay uh, unspoiled, don't listen to this. Uh, Go back and play the game, get your fifth ability, and then come back to this podcast. Okay, good spoiler warning. Yeah. All right, Uh, so the new abilities, first of all, is Fusion. Mm -hmm. This lets you take objects in the environment. Uh, it doesn't have to be metal like it was with Magnesis. It can be rocks, minecarts, tree trunks, anything, mm-hmm. and affix them to either your shield or your weapons. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, to hilarious results. Yes, and doing so will increase the either the defense or attack value of that shield or weapon. Or sometimes uh, add weird new mechanics to it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you add, like, a Lizalfos tail to, like, a sword, it becomes kind of like a whip, because as you swing it, the tail unrolls. Right, yeah, or, you know, you know, elemental stuff. So if you fuse an ice Lizalfos tail to a sword, it can freeze enemies. Yes. Um, this adds a lot of neat versatility to building your arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually really love this, uh, because there's different... Um, weapon subtypes so like royal sword soldier sword traveler mm-hmm. swords things like that yeah. and in breath of the wild you were kind so they each have their own kind of unique quality to them mm-hmm. and you were forced into using one category or another in breath of the wild because in addition to the unique quality that that weapon subtype had the strength of that weapon was also usually tied to that type yeah. So in the late game, when you wanted strong weapons, you'd be mostly using like royal weapons, right? Which I think the modifier on those is that it's uh, improved. Um, what's called it? Flurry striking. When you oh, that makes sense. Dodge yeah, dodge yeah. something. Yeah. So you were kind of locked into that. Here, the weapon subtypes are more uniform in their base power level. And you make them stronger by sticking stronger things to that weapon. So I haven't been this finicky with the system but mm-hmm. if you wanted to really lean into one play style you could choose you can now choose one weapon subtype and then just affix strong materials to that to make them scale into the late game better i'm glad that you say that spencer because fusion is the least used of the powers for me so far and part of that comes down to the fact that i was still using weapons like i used them in breath of the wild where, oh, you know, I use this traveler sword until it breaks, and then I use this spear until it breaks, and then every once in a while, I'll fuse something. You know, if I need an ice power, if I'm in a fire area, because it's more effective against the enemies, I'll do that. 
But it hadn't really struck me yet that, uh, like, I prefer one-handed weapons, so I can wield a shield in the left hand. And in Breath of the Wild, you were kind of rewarded for picking two-handed weapons because they were just stronger. But in Tears of the Kingdom, you could, say, fuse a strong item with your one-handed weapon and then still wield a shield in the left hand while you use a stronger one-handed weapon. Yes. Pretty cool. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of theorycrafting a bit here. Nine times out of ten, if a weapon breaks, I just pick up whatever weapon the thing I killed dropped and then stick the strongest thing around me to it. Um, I don't put that much time and consideration into filling out my inventory, but uh, you could do that. You know what I really like this for is building (laughs) mining tools, because when I'm down, you know, and I I encounter some ore or something that I want to to strike, uh, I stick a rock onto a sword and boom, you got yourself a mining hammer. That's the main way that I've used this so far. Up next, we've got Ascend. Ascend is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. So this ability lets you target a surface above yourself and then kind of swim through it and pop out the top like a street shark. (laughs) Just like a street shark. For all of you that grew up in the 90s and remember street sharks. You know, this this makes this the second appearance of the street sharks on our show, if memory serves. We've got a pretty good street shark. I don't remember, but I know it came up because you don't forget a street sharks reference. Yeah, so um, that's really all there is to Ascend. I don't know about you, but the others are so, like, fun to play around with. Every once in a while I forget Ascend is an ability I'll have. Mm -hmm. So I'll end up at the bottom of a well or exploring something where it looks like I'm stuck. And I'm like, oh, gee, guess I'm stuck. And we'll, like, fast travel out only to remember later, oh, I could have just used Ascend to pop through the ceiling. Yeah, Ascend is is the secret bolt in the quiver of Tears of the Kingdom. I use it more and more. Uh, the, the bummer with Ascend is that I have a hard time estimating just how far it extends. So there are times when I want to use Ascend and can't because it has too limited a range. And there are times when, you know, I think to use Ascend and then I realize, oh, I guess I could have just climbed that. So Ascend, yeah, Ascend is, I don't want to call it the weak link here because I actually probably use it second most, but it it maybe is a little bit more geographically limited in its usefulness. Yeah, because just to be clear, you can't really aim this and swim through any surface. It has to be directly above you. Mm -hmm. So that does limit when you can use it. And they do do some neat stuff with it. Once you get into the mindset of remembering you have it Mm -hmm. you know there are a lot of puzzles where you might see something you know on the other side of like a like a gate that you can't get to Mm -hmm. and what you end up having to do is try to navigate your way underneath that space and then try to figure you know uh orient yourself such that you can swim through the floor up into the area that was locked off before Yeah, the shrines make great use of this. This is, um, in some ways, Ascend feels almost like a tool inspired by old Zelda. That if Ascend was a tool that you had in even 2D Zeldas, it would lead to really interesting puzzle solving. And so it it does here in the shrines, which are the closest to traditional Zelda. They're very enclosed spaces with limited verb sets. And so getting under something with the ability to phase up into it is a pretty cool way to break out of the visible level design. Up next is Recall. Yeah. Recall lets you target an object that has moved, and it will 
rewind that object. It will start to flow backwards through time. Um, this is an interesting ability. It doesn't have quite the freedom or fun that, you know, the next one has. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to feel, I feel like the technical <laughs> aspects of this is really impressive because the only way I can think of this to work is for the game to somehow track the movement of every single object all the time. Yep. It because is an absolutely not, staggering programming coup. Yeah, because it's not just things on a fixed trajectory like, you know, cogs and turning wheels and things like that. It can be objects that you interact with. So it's not it doesn't just have to rewind something on a pre-programmed path. It follows like the actual path that any object may have taken. It feels like magic. Well, the kind of the main course here is Ultra Hand. Mm-hmm. Ultra Hand is the new ability that allows you to manipulate pretty much any physical object in the world a la magnesis but for non-metallic objects so again mm-hmm. trees stone whatever but it more importantly it allows you to rotate and attach those objects to one another mm-hmm. if there is a limit to how many objects can be attached to one another at a time i have not come across it yet no neither have i it feels like man's imagination would reach its limit before the ultra hand ability yeah so this lets you construct you know bridges structures vehicles (laughs) it is an absolute like sandbox it feels like someone stuck gary's mod inside breath of the wild yes that's the best way to describe it gary's mod uh for listeners who don't know being a, what is that, a Half-Life 2 mod that, that's basically a physics sandbox. Yes. Um, you just get to go absolutely nuts constructing wacky makeshift things <laughs> to solve every problem. It's the best! It's incredible! I was so nervous about this. Even when I saw, like, uh, when I... I guess I didn't watch the the Aonuma gameplay video, but I heard about that kind of like fusing of objects together. And I was like, oh, no, you know, I'm not a crafting game guy. I don't I don't play Minecraft. Uh, Is this going to be onerous to me? And it's not. It manages to both lower the floor, uh, like the skill floor, so anybody can do it. And also the skill ceiling. So the things that you can that you create can be mind bending engineering marvels yes um like day one there was videos of people that made fully functioning helicopters in this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh it's wild um and it also i think leads to the best puzzles in the entire franchise mm-hmm. agreed every single one is an absolute masterpiece physics puzzle and part of that's subjective right because there's different types of puzzles games implement i like physics-based kind of construction stuff maybe someone is lamenting the lack of towers of hanoi here i don't know maybe like i'm a sucker for block pushing but also uh you know i've played portal i've played portal 2 a physics puzzle is all right by me i was gonna say it's like portal except you just have the gravity gun instead of the portal gun but that's kind of just half-life 2 right without shooting (laughs) it's like portal but without the portal gun yes that's (laughs) half-life (laughs) <laughs> they made it several years before. 
Touche. Yeah, Ultrahand's weirdly hard to talk about because it's such an a broad, open-ended, and powerful tool mm-hmm. that that kind of like overview that we just gave feels both somehow too broad, but also it's exactly what it is. I don't know what else to add about Ultrahand functionality. It scales to the player in a way that's hard to that's hard to capture in words. Like I think of other things that scale to the player. You know, it's like saying, like, sword fighting scales to the player in a Souls game, or jumping scales to the player in a Mario game. You know, these things are simple to perform at their core, but the degree to which they grow with you is staggering. It's a system where, even though, like, the bounds of the game are ultimately the limit, it feels like the only limit is your imagination. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you, depending on how much you want to engage with Ultra Hand, you might never make anything that much more complicated than basically a pallet with four wheels stuck on it. Mm-hmm. Or, Most of what I do. As I have, or you can be like folks on Reddit who have made, I don't know how else to describe this, a giant Gumby with a penis made out of flamethrowers. Yeah, that's a real, uh, I've seen that gif. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like or a Metal Gear. You can turn this game into Metal Gear 6. Yeah, it's it's absolutely unhinged. It's mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, it really is. I, I really liked... Um, it was, again, the, uh, the, the games journalist from the Washington Post, Gene Park, who noted in his review of the game that most puzzles, if you aren't inclined to build, can be solved by building bridges. You can one way or another string objects together to make a bridge so you can see credits. But if you're feeling creative, you can develop the most outsized wild solutions to problems in this, and those are also acceptable, which dramatically widens the gameplay palette for a game developed by Nintendo, famously some of the more uh, controlling of game developers. And that was planned from the beginning. Uh, Certainly in that interview, the developers talk about uh, one of the questions is, are you afraid that people will cheat, that they'll find some way to break your creation? And broadly, the opinion of the developers was, we encourage it. Uh, Like, it's it's cool to see how people break something that was created to be uh, run one way by doing it a different way, that that diversity is uh, a value when it comes to puzzle solving in the Zelda universe. Very well put. Yeah, what's our fifth mysterious hidden ability in this game, Spencer? Yeah, the spoiler one. Uh, You do eventually, and I wonder how much of a spoiler this is, because an inclusion of something like this seemed like such a, something I wanted so badly, I kind of assumed this function would pop up. Yeah. Uh, That's auto build. Um, Later on, you unlock an ability so that when you build an object with Ultra Hand, the game will remember that object and will allow you to automatically recreate it if the raw materials are within proximity to you, uh, more or less instantaneously. I think you can build an object using, um, what do you call it? There, it's, it's like a resource that you gather. The zonite. Yeah, yeah, like the little zonite building blocks. So you, like, you don't need a wheel in the environment to craft something with a wheel. If you have enough zonite building blocks you can just exchange those for having built the object, even where the building materials aren't handy. Maybe. 
truth be told, <laughs> I haven't actually messed around with auto build that much. Neither have I. Ooh, we're both showing our ignorance here, eh? I don't, man. Tiptoeing around spoilers is a lot harder than I thought it would be. It is. I usually deploy auto build at these little like uh, predetermined stations that have a lot of building blocks there. Right. Already. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So I haven't really messed around with it out in a situation where I didn't just naturally have the parts available to me anyway. So okay. you could be right. And don't quote me on this. I want to say I used it on a sky platform the other day where there were very few uh, components available and it still built the hot air balloon that I wanted. Which suggested to me that maybe you don't need the components around. But it, it sounds like the jury's still out on this as far as Franchise Festival is concerned. Did you maybe have the ca capsules containing the parts you needed? E-gads, I may have. That might be it. Okay. Yes. So uh, maybe we should mention some of the more complex machine parts that they added to this. Uh, like altering tires, fans, right. propellers, uh, flamethrowers. Uh, Things that you might want on hand in order to create nifty inventions, mm -hmm. you can find in capsule form a la Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, they're uh, like gachapon machines in the environment, which is just peak Nintendo. It's very cute. Yeah, you build them up in your inventory, and then uh, they're consumable. You pop them, and then that object appears in the environment for you to stick to something with Ultra Hand. Right, and when you buy them, you know, by exchanging one resource for these capsules, you get a random selection of them out of the machine. It's yes. very cute. Very cute. Yeah. Um, I think that's it for the new abilities. Mm-hmm. Sure enough. The camera returns. We said no old abilities come back, but you still oh, have the camera. Oh, yeah, you have the camera. It takes forever to unlock the camera, though. I forgot that it existed, and I had a blank space on my wheel. And I was like, what's that going to be? And then I unlocked the camera about 25 hours into the game. That must have been a disappointment. <laughs> it's, it's actually useful for... For some game quests that I wasn't expecting. It doesn't just have an encyclopedia effect here. It, it has a utility in some side quests. Uh, so I, I was pretty happy when I got the camera, strangely enough. Even though it's, you know, feels like a recapitulation of Breath of the Wild. Yeah, it's definitely useful. Um, yeah. But, you know, when the bar has been set by Ultra Hand to have your last empty slot turn out to be camera. It's true, yeah, you can't beat Ultra Hand. This is a little more plot forward, or plot, it's it, more cine, to, my brain's not making words. Sure ain't. Cinegraphic? That's not, cinematic. I cinematic. There we go. Yeah, cinematics. Want to take that one from Jesus. the top? <laughs> Leave it in. Okay, okay. It's important that our viewers know how, uh, watch us deteriorate <laughs> in real time. Just how burned out are we? You'll find <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah.
uh, we actually have we, there's a lot more cutscenes, particularly in the modern day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, memories are back. They're a little different. So you no longer are looking for specific locations to trigger a memory based on like a still frame. Uh, instead, there is something called geoglyphs that are introduced, which mm-hmm. are these large. Uh, they're like almost like paintings on the light la- that cover a giant landscape historically minded uh listeners might refer to the nazca lines in peru which these are a pretty direct reference to they're giant images on the landscape and you need to locate like a specific um it's like a teardrop object within that geoglyph and then mm-hmm. that triggers a cutscene. I guess we should probably not talk about what those cutscenes are referencing because that is a big spoiler plot thing. But it is, it's similar in the sense that it is something that you are hunting for across Hyrule in order to unravel more plot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, they're giant glowing like things. Like They're a lot harder to miss than the memories in Breath of the Wild, so I mm-hmm. think these are a little easier to collect all of them and pick up the plot. One of the things that I find interesting about these, and I haven't fully puzzled it out yet, is that these are... <laughs> Whereas the ones in Breath of the Wild were linked geographically to the spot that the uh, photo was taken, these ones are not geographically linked to where you find the memory, but they are also not found in a linear sequence. You know... It's it's kind of interesting. There is not an order. Uh, I swear my apartment must be bugged because as we were Uh-oh. talking about these geoglyphs, my friend Matt just texted me, get the Master Sword geoglyph last. Major plot spoilers and only makes sense if you've also gotten all the other ones. Yeah, he's not wrong. I got that one. <laughs> uh, that's a real wild one that I got early and I thought, huh, this feels like it would be more dramatically resonant if I got it later. Yeah, it's just wild that he sent that in the middle of this exact discussion. It's uh, it's a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Let's talk allies, Spencer. Yeah, so this has a kind of larger, more classic dungeons like mm-hmm. Breath of the Wild did with the uh, the Sacred Beasts. Yeah. Um, but in that, when you beat it, you'd unlock these passive powers now you went well i've only beaten one i'm assuming it's similar for all of them yeah i've only gotten two so i guess i can't speak to the remaining two but the two that i got are very different from breath of the wild yeah so now in addition to just getting like a power that you can call upon you actually get a sort of like uh almost like an astral projection of the sage and they follow you around and help you in combat and they stack. Uh, you don't know this yet, Spencer, so spoiler to you. But they uh, you can have multiple of them with you at a time. I assumed that you couldn't, because when you get your first one, it gives you a little tutorial on how to like turn them on and off. So I just assumed that if it gives you the option to turn one off, there had to be a limit to how many you could have. Why would you ever turn them off? Truth be told, I do turn them off. Because I like the solitude of adventuring solo. I usually turn them on when I need them as a utility or when I'm in a tough combat encounter. Uh, I like having it. The one I have feels really strong. Uh, that one with the bow and arrow, right? Yeah, he it's headshots great. things constantly. Yeah, it's incredible, especially for airborne enemies that only take one hit. 
Uh, that that dude, uh, that dude's really important. The one annoying thing is though the way you activate the power it doesn't have its own dedicated button. You go mm-hmm. up and uh, interact with the spirit that's following you, and sometimes they'll be standing like on th- something else I'm trying to interact with, and it just keeps making gusts of wind instead of letting me like pick up the pot or whatever mm-hmm. it is I'm trying to do. Yeah, the so. inverse creates a problem with uh, the second one that I get, which is the one associated with the Elden region. Where uh, his ability is really closely tied into, uh, I'm I'm I am dancing around spoilers here, Spencer. His ability is very carefully tied into being on a level elevation with the environmental object that you want to impact with his ability, and consequently, if his little phantom is standing at a lower elevation or hasn't gotten up onto the same platform as you, it is difficult to activate. So you end up having to kind of build ramps and so forth to use his ability. I guess in hindsight, even talking about you getting an ability that makes wind is some people could talk consider a spoiler. So just just bleep all that out. Well, that's why I was thinking, indicating that the spoiler wall is kind of like a dozen hours into the game. That probably covers the first dungeon, you know? Yeah. Fair like enough. it's likely that somebody gets to a dungeon in the first 10 hours or so. Yeah, probably. The game really heavily points you towards the wind dungeon. So, yes. you know, that, that was once, my first destination. Yeah, once I finished that one up, I noticed it kind of pushing me toward, like, three different regions. Mm-hmm. But at first, like, every single NPC is definitely like, oh, you should go help out here, brother, having some problems. The ascent to that dungeon, too. How about that? You know, like, I, I guess we won't get into the specifics of it here, but what a doggone set piece. It is awesome. <laughs> that is, like, something that Zelda hasn't done... I don't know, like Skyward Sword is maybe the closest, I would say, to kind of the cinematic quality of the set pieces here, but this feels like a step beyond. That that felt kind of like Elden Ring epic. I was pretty taken with it uh, yeah. when I did it. It was, again, it, it's really elegant the way that working in that vertical space makes the scale of things kind of hard to judge from afar. Right. When I first started making the Ascent up the mountain and you kind of look at the you can see the path it doesn't seem as long as it is no and then it as doesn't. you're doing it it just goes so long and so long and it doesn't get boring or feel drawn out never like the whole time you're just like oh my god how high up am i going this is nuts yeah and it, it's constantly giving you new things to do like it yeah. it, it theoretically is just a vertical ascent but every phase of that vertical ascent has you doing something slightly different. It really is that kind of Nintendo magic that comes from having veteran staffers who have developed levels for the last 30 years being like, well, how do we compel people here? Moving on, we've got a new resource called Zonai Charge. Mm-hmm. You find objects that are powered by electricity that yeah. are useful both in terms of solving puzzles and constructing vehicles. So we mentioned things like uh, fans, propellers, tires. You can turn those objects on to give like a means of propulsion or creating fire or whatever you decide to construct. Uh, And that will drain a little battery meter that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can upgrade that uh, not via shrines like you do heart containers and stamina vessels. Uh, It uses its own separate resource, but there's an NPC you go to and you can exchange something to expand that meter uh, and create more complex devices that use more powered parts uh, or just run simple creations for longer. 
I have still not found that NPC that lets me expand it. Uh... Or I have and I haven't realized it yet. Well, you've almost certainly been where they are. You just must have not realized that. Arg. Yeah. I mean, it's in the it's in the tutorial area. You know, I was talking to some <laughs> friends online the other day, and they told me that I had already learned about this. And I thought, yeah. well, no, I haven't. But I'm sure they were right. Yeah. They throw so much at you early in this, uh, for better and worse, I'll say, that there are things that probably escape some players' notice. And for the life of me, I can't figure out how to expand my battery. So, you know, there you it's are. It's sort of weird because they are very hidden. And when you find them, there's no possible way you could have the resource that you need to hand it in. Hmm. So I haven't actually expanded mine yet. I have the resources I need to expand it. Yeah. It's just I know I found them. But they're, like, buried in some cave someplace not near, like, a fast travel thing in the tutorial area. And I just, like, can't quite remember how to get back to them, Man. even though I've found them once before. Have you found Hestu yet? Yes. He's a delight. He does a dance to expand your inventory if you give him Korok seeds. That's a good segue, because speaking of Korok seeds, we have a new flavor of uh, Korok interaction. Thank for goodness. Thank goodness. I love these um, dudes so much. Yeah, so you end up finding these Koroks uh, with these giant, comically oversized backpacks just laying around. Mm -hmm. And they explain to you that they were traveling with a friend, but they got too tired and literally can't move. And they need <laughs> you to bring them to their friend. And then you'll see a little uh, campfire. It'll zoom in on a campfire off in the distance. You have to bring them there. And you have to, you can pick up the Koroks like they're an object, with like Ultra Hand. And you've got to get them to their friend. Mm-hmm. These are, I have mixed feelings on these. Really? Okay. We I have mean, different opinions then. I love these. It's a very, I mean, the Koroks are adorable. Sure, sure. You, generally, I really like yeah -ha -ha. these. Yeah, Yeah, the noises they make are cute. They constantly say like, oof, as you knock them around. <laughs> and yeah. you end up strapping them to like, you put them in incredibly dangerous situations to move them from point A to point B. Yeah, but they're invincible, you know. Yeah, it, it's, it's overwhelmingly charming. Yeah. I've got to give it that. Yeah. The reason why I have mixed feelings is some of them are either... Some of them are hard. And I they get very hard, yeah. Yeah. So some of them are easy. Some of them, if you have the patience, you could literally just pick it up and then walk it from A to B with Ultra Hand. Yeah. Or the more fun way is to just stick the Korok to the wagon harness on your horse and drag them behind you. <laughs> oh no! Home. I haven't tried that! <laughs> They'd be oofing so much. Yes, um, but, you know, eventually they'll start introducing obstacles and you'll have to create vehicles to stick them to mm -hmm. um, to send them on their way. Did you ever uh, do the one in Hebra where its uh, its buddy is at a higher elevation on a thing that you can't walk to? There's like a broken bridge and everything. I don't remember. There's been at least one where I ended up strapping a Korok to a missile and then shooting it over to where it needed to be. I've heard of people doing that, but I'm always scared of getting them lost. I have too much of empathy for those little weirdos. I mean, he didn't land where I wanted him to. I got him across the obstacle, so it was close enough that I could drag him the rest of the way myself. Yeah, but... <laughs> that's the most important thing. I spent a solid hour... Solving one of these Korok puzzles in the Hebrew region. 
and like slowly moving a Korok up a broken bridge by strapping him to the broken pieces of it and then moving myself around so I could get him strapped to another broken piece of it further up. It was very challenging. I've come around just over the course of this conversation. I love these. They're cool. They're great. I feel like they are peak tears of the kingdom. They're like they're environmental puzzles in a nutshell. And you get two Korok seeds for each one. One you from do. the guy you move and one to his friend that you reunite him with. Twice as good as a standard Korok puzzle. Yeah. Maybe we should also mention, uh, is that Allison? Is that his name? The sign guy? Yes! Oh, yeah, we don't have him in the notes. The sign guy is another big, uh, like, Tears of the Kingdom puzzle 101. Yeah. Um, so is it Edison? Is that the name of the head of Terrytown? From the first Ooh, game you got me i i love tarrytown was my favorite quest in the original and i i haven't gone there yet in tears of the kingdom because i am holding it off as my reward for doing everything else uh because that's my favorite place but um it's the hudson hudson uh hudson is the like hudson the company construction. yeah hudson construction company yeah so there's a character named i think it's allison who is promoting the hudson construction company mm-hmm. by putting up signs all over the place yeah uh, you find this guy everywhere the problem is the signs are not constructed such that they can stand up on their own so right. he has to stand there and just hold them mm-hmm. until you come along and build little contraptions to hold the sign in place so then you tell him to let go of it and he does and if the sign stands up on its own uh, then he gives you money food like a meal that he cooked mm-hmm. and just like a random rare resource it's real nice yeah um it's like super cute the guy really loves the construction company and if you build the contraption wrong and the sign falls <laughs> over after he lets go he like panics in the most adorable way yeah what's he say he says like unacceptable or what is it, it unforgivable yes love it love it love it just a classic yeah. zelda nerd you know just a. A real beetle kind of guy. Just a real weirdo in the Zelda mold. Yeah, I haven't come across one of these that's not, like, really easy to solve, but I still do them every time because they're just... I don't know, just the charm of playing with Ultra Hand in general hasn't worn off for me yet. Yeah, so. it just... It, these puzzles, much like the Korak puzzles, just kind of circle you back around to the, the strong central fundamentals of the game. Yeah. Uh, and, and I actually, it occurs to me, I want to give a shout out here to the shrines, which um, the shrines are back from Breath of the Wild, which I know folks were kind of nervous about. But the shrines here feel like a step up. Uh, a, in that the environmental puzzles in them are slightly tougher, and they do disable your ability to just spawn in Zonai elements. So that, you know, they, they do require you to be adaptable. But the combat ones in, in particular integrate the Master Trials from Breath of the Wild's downloadable content, where you will uh, be dropped into kind of a combat arena, kind of Metal Gear Solid style, with uh, no real, no weapons, no shield, nothing. And you'll need to scrounge around in the environment and use your four abilities to defeat the enemies in the combat trial. And those are some of my favorite. I I will spend a long time on each of those because I'll just get my butt kicked again and again. And I I just think it's a nicer integration of a a tough adaptation combat challenge than what was present in the Master Trials. Yeah, I gave my feelings on it a little bit earlier. I just, the flavor of puzzle that Ultra Hand enables, I think are just A+. Yeah. Um, I haven't really come across one I disliked yet. There was only... 
only maybe one, maybe a minor complaint where I feel like I was able to kind of like cheat a puzzle because sometimes it's broken into stages mm -hmm. where you'll create kind of like a vehicle to get from one zone to the next and then you're given a new batch of resources to solve the next problem with. Right. Um, and there was one I ran across where I just kind of went back and was able to pick up and drag my vehicle from the last section through the door into the new section mm -hmm. and it felt like that circumvented the entire puzzle of the part i was in yeah i know exactly the puzzle that you're talking about and yeah i found that a little bit unfortunate too i i, I was surprised that they didn't prevent that solution yeah but i also i kind of don't hate it um no feeling like you outsmarted the puzzle is its own reward if it only happens a couple times. Yeah, and there's a telling thing in that Nintendo interview that I thought was really cool, where uh, one of the developers said that one of the most rewarding things to them in the world is when somebody comes up to them and tells them that they felt like they were the only person in the world who solved this Zelda puzzle. And you get that feeling so often in Tears of the Kingdom. Like, they, they designed the game to make you feel like aha, I must have been the only person who thought of this solution. And, you know, statistically, numerically, you probably aren't. But I'll be darned if you don't feel like that half the time. It just, that's a good way to design a puzzle. It, it just, it makes you feel good, you know? Weirdly enough, the aesthetic ties into that a little bit. Because if you're looking at something, if like the puzzle involved, if you're looking at like a situation and you're like, oh, I have to, there's like a like a gear that's turning. You're like, oh, I have to somehow extend that gear tooth so that it hits this platform right 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 and if your solution ends up like daisy chaining together like three tires a log a signpost a torch and an <laughs> apple to make it long enough it just looks so janky and thrown together that even though like if that's the materials they gave you to do it that's clearly how they expected you to solve it and how most people probably solved it but it just looks so ridiculous that it feels like you weren't supposed to do it. So that covers kind of the broad strokes of what's changed and new and shiny about Tears of the Kingdom. So, mm -hmm. uh, Chris, what are your overall impressions of the game? I really like Tears of the Kingdom. It's challenging because Tears of the Kingdom does everything that Breath of the Wild does better, right? It, uh, it you know, it uses some different abilities, but largely they roll in the abilities that you had in Breath of the Wild in one way or the other. Bombs are now bomb flowers. Uh, Ultra Hand rolls in the Magnesis ability. You know, it, it really is Breath of the Wild, but more. Uh, two and a half times the, the explorable space and exploration was the best part of Breath of the Wild. It's got all of my favorite characters back again, my favorite spaces. It has the, the beauty and serenity of uh, Hateno and Kakariko villages and the Rito village, along with the excitement of exploring some of the more wild spaces of Breath of the Wild, and it makes them scary again. You know, it it returns you to the early period of Breath of the Wild where uh, a Lionel was a huge danger, but it 
that happens much more often here. There are much more intense bosses here. You know, I guess we didn't cover bosses in the gameplay section, but there are many more varied bosses here than there were in Breath of the Wild. Yes, it does feel like the bosses I've encountered so far have been actual, what felt like actual, like, new designed bosses and mm-hmm. not just another blight ganon yeah copy pasted and that was my that was my one big beef with breath of the wild was the blight ganons the bosses in that because zelda bosses had been so iconic before that and they largely threw that out uh, the baby with the proverbial bathwater in breath of the wild that they they threw out the rigid dungeon design but in doing so they also threw out the iconic boss design and they managed to, to bring both of those back in here. They have the freeform exploration of Breath of the Wild, but uh, complex dungeons and bosses of classic Zelda games, along with a plot that is more emotionally resonant than almost any Zelda game since, uh, you know, I say since, uh, any other Zelda game than Skyward Sword, I think, was the only one that hit kind of these emotional beats. And this one supersedes it, I would say. So... On the face of it, Tears of the Kingdom is an improvement on Breath of the Wild. But there's this there's this asterisk to that. There's this footnote that it is hard to repeat the shock of Breath of the Wild. Like, you're, you're back in similar spaces. There's more to do. It's more compelling. But you can't, you can't go back to the shock of, in early 2017, encountering Breath of the Wild. And so that that's kind of what you get with any piece of media that's really transformative, is that you can't repeat that exactly, even if it's refined. I, the verdict is still out for me on whether this is a more compelling experience to me than Breath of the Wild. It's, it's plainly a more technically impressive and storytelling impressive experience, but whether it is, uh, like experientially better is really hard to say only a few weeks out from release how about you spencer i'm also inclined to be a little conservative with what i say about final opinion um Mm -hmm. despite how much sugar i just talked about it right i mean the story is you know much better than the precedent set by the rest of the franchise ultra hand is incredible Mm -hmm. i it is an awesome multi-purpose tool that kind of replaces and expands upon the entire tool set of the first game mm-hmm. all in one. My my gut reaction is that this is better in every way. <laughs> Same, right. But I have a lot of game left and I want to leave like a little, I need to leave an out for myself just in case 70 hours from now I find myself going, oh God. God, they, they want me to make another fan-powered minecart? Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. So, you know, I based on the, how strong the first impressions are, I don't think that's going to happen. I predict that this is going to probably be my favorite game of the year, and I'm going to like it better than Breath of the Wild. But again, it's I'm fresh enough into it that everything is still shiny and new and fun. Just playing around with Ultra Hand is still just an inherently fun activity on its own because mm-hmm. it's just a cool new toy. So, you know, once I get to the end, we'll 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 see, but 
I don't know. I'm optimistic, even if I am trying to put on a face of being reserved. <laughs> what do you think about how they've changed the world, how they've uh, altered the face of ground Hyrule and, and added sky and depths to it? Does that improve it to you or pull away from it? It improves it. Um, you know, we, we replayed Breath of the Wild for the podcast not that long ago. Right. Oh my god! Actually, well, two years like ago, three years. Yeah. Oh uh, man, Resident <laughs> Evil took forever. Maybe a lot it has of Resident been a Evil while. games, huh? <laughs> but that was you know long enough ago, and there's so much stuff to find and interact with that honestly, it doesn't feel like I'm retreading the same area. Um, I haven't come across a place yet where I thought to myself, "Oh, I already did this." Mm-hmm. You know, like it all. You know, there's new shrine locations. You're looking for new caves that opened up. Uh, things like Korok locations and treasures have been like remixed and that's the stuff that you're really looking at. I think more so, I mean, every person's going to be different, mm-hmm. but I find myself looking for those like little details to try to see where Koroks are hiding or where little yeah. nooks are that I can explore more so than I am just looking at the like topography of the whole area. Maybe you look at that when you first get to a zone, but for the most part, I'm not focused on that. So it still feels new and fresh to me even if it is the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the depths are very cool. It's, you know, we didn't go into, there's some like depth specific mechanics we didn't cover, mm-hmm. I think probably for spoiler reasons. Right, but, exactly. You know, exploring down there does have a different cadence to it than the overworld. It's my favorite part of the game, if I'm being honest. So far, the depths uh, feel like an entirely different Zelda experience. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Also... You know, we, we didn't mention this. The way the Sheikah Towers work is a little different mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of just being able to teleport on top of them and then paraglide off, they will actually catapult you into the sky <laughs> and you can like skydive down across different parts of Hyrule. Very cute animation. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, there there's some puzzles involved in unlocking them sometimes. Some of them are, are pretty straightforward, but then other ones, man, I'm going to... Sp- boil a mild environmental puzzle here so you know if if folks are sensitive about having how to get into one of those sheikah towers spoiled uh maybe just skip the next 30 seconds or so but this was really slick i was experimenting when i got to a sheikah tower that was unlocked the other day and it had uh, thorns all around it but it was raining and so i couldn't burn the thorns away And I wondered, how do I deal with this? And then it occurred to me, what if I construct an awning off of the tower? And so I constructed an entire awning with four legs, which made a very small area of the map dry and dry enough for me to light the thorns on fire and get into the door. That's awesome. Yeah, just incredible. The game just adapts to your every whim. It's it's the quintessential saying yes to the player game. And that's that for our coverage of The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. We hope that you've enjoyed listening and encourage you to come back next time for Supergiant's Pyre. 
In the interim, consider backing us at patreon.com slash franchisefestival, where you'll get access to a bonus episode each month, and even have the chance to vote on future episode topics. If you have any suggestions, you can also drop us a line on Twitter using the handle at franchise underscore fest, or email us at franchisefestival at gmail.com. Once again, we've been your hosts, Chris and Spencer. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye.